Thank you for listening to Emmanuel Baptist Church's podcast. For more information about the church, please visit our website at www.emmanuelmanning.com. Thanks and enjoy the sermon. Well, let's, uh, if we can together, let's look at uh, Revelation 4. Uh, I already preached through Revelation 4 and 5 a couple of weeks ago. And what I want to do is just go back and look at both of those chapters again in a little more detail. Because I'm really zealous that you guys not understand everything, but at least get a grip on how to approach literature such as Revelation. Uh, Because I think it's really important that we have the capacity to do that. My, My job, first and foremost, if you see what Ephesians 4 says, is it's to teach. It's to teach. Uh, And so this morning, that's what I want to do, Lord willing, as we look at Revelation 4. I'm going to say a few things that, A, some of you have never heard before. B, some of you think is going to be weird. And C, some of you are going to want to leave. But let me just say this. Even though you've never heard it before, doesn't mean it's never been said before. The, the predominant view of the way of interpreting the book of Revelation that many of us would assume is just the way it's always been looked at has actually only been around about 180 years. And so there's a lot of ways of looking at this book that have been written about in church history, and I'm falling into a stream of thought about this book that's different than what many people have thought about it before. I'll go ahead, because I've said it before in our first sermon on the Revelation. Um, I I view the book of Revelation as having been mostly already been fulfilled in the destruction of the temple in the year A.D. 70. Now, you don't have to agree with me in order to get stuff out of this, and this is certainly not an issue we need to break fellowship over, but my wife always reminds me, Drew, you say your interpretation is different. You need to let them know it's not only yours. It's not only mine. Uh, it's had Jonathan Edwards thought this way, so I'm good, right? So uh, let's read Revelation 4 together, uh, and I'm only going to look this morning really at verses uh, 1 to 7, and so that's what I'll, I'll read. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones, seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. 
And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes around, I can't stop, around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Let me read to you a quote from John Owen. He wrote a book. I have a lot of books I think everybody should read. But if there's ever a book that fits on that list that's difficult, it's a book that John Owen wrote called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. It's a book about the atonement and how effective it was. Jesus' death and everything he accomplished and what it was intended to accomplish and everything that it did accomplish. I just want to read from the introduction because, boy, this is tough. Listen to what he says. Reader, if you intend, I'm translating from King James into our English, if you intend to go any further, I would beg you to stay here a little while. But if you are, like so many in this pretending age, a sign or a title gazer, and you come into books as Cato does into the theater to go in and out again, You've had your entertainment. Farewell. So this guy is writing his book, and here's the way he begins his book. If you're interested, keep reading. If you only want a snippet or a bullet point or read something very, very quickly so that you can think you have understanding and then leave, see ya. What's he saying? He's saying that, let me put it in a modern-day vernacular, uh, you rake for leaves, you dig for diamonds. One of the hardest things that, one of the pressures I constantly feel is, on Sunday morning, I, I want to keep a balance between really digging into the text with you and also not A, going 70 minutes, or B, being so down there that not everybody can kind of follow along. But one of the things we're going to have to do is, is do the very thing that Owen warned against 400 years ago that's even more prevalent in our society. Because we live in a day and an age where you think you read one article on the internet by somebody who you've never heard of and you understand an issue. And we need to, we need to work against that. And honestly, as a pastor, trying to work against that probably limits the amount of people that we can get in here because most people want the same thing from church that they want from that internet page. Give me a quick shot of something that can get me through Monday. I, I want, by God's grace, to be used to give you something that will carry you from here until the day you die in faith so that you don't die and, and go to hell. <laughs> right? And so I, I take this seriously. So we're not going to go talk about every Greek word in here. But I just want you to know, if at some point today you feel like you need to come up for air... Well, that's a, an apt illustration because you, you can hold your breath longer the more you practice, right? And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to do these sermons where we look at the whole thing so we can see the forest. And then we're going to go back and we're going to look at the woods. And so let me have the, just give you the same warning. And this is not the kind of thing you want to do in a church growth age, but I think it is the kind of thing you want to do in an age when people are starving for truth. Is you want to say, if you're here just to see a few titles... Uh, just to go in and go out again, just to say you were there and you saw it, peace out. But I, I don't know about you, I want to understand this book. I want to understand what it means. I want to understand how it helps me to understand the rest of the Bible. And Revelation is such a good book for that because Revelation is not only the last book of the Bible, it's the summation of the Bible's prophetic word. 
And so it helps us to look back and to understand things. And so let's, shall we dig in? When you look at this book, and you look at this chapter specifically, there are two things I want us to see here that we're going to look at over two weeks. The first is the one seated on the throne, and the second is the worship of the one seated on the throne. Those are the two things happening in, really, chapters 4 and 5, but we're just going to look at chapter 4. Next week, we're going to look at the worship of the one seated on the throne, but this week, I just want us to look at the one who is indeed seated on the throne. And there's a couple things I want us to learn about him. Number one, his preeminence. Number two, his posse. We've seen that before. Uh, number three, his person. And number four, his purpose. That's what we're looking at today. Uh, his preeminence, his posse, his person, and his purpose. As we dig into looking at this one on the throne. Everything, speaking of his preeminence, everything in this text is built around the throne of God. In these two chapters, 4 and 5, the word throne is, is listed 17 times. Now, in the Bible, they don't have underlining. They don't have uh, italics. They don't have quotation marks. If you were to look at a Greek manuscript or a Hebrew manuscript, they don't even have punctuation and spaces. It's just letter, 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 letter capital letters, all right? Uh, so if they want to grab your attention, if they want you to see what you're supposed to focus in on, and they don't use scare quotes, they repeat things. And so normally when you're reading a Bible text, if you want to understand what that Bible text is about, start looking for ideas or words that are repeated. And here, 17 times in two uh, chapters, we have this idea of the throne and a bunch of prepositions, right? From the throne, on the throne, around the throne, beside the throne, before the throne, from the midst of the throne, everything here is showing that our God is seated on a throne. It's his preeminence. You've got to see who sits on it, and you've got to understand that he is on it. Because if you'll remember, uh, back in Revelation 2 and 3, John tells us that this letter was written to seven churches, representing kind of all churches, who are suffering from one thing or another. They're either suffering from uh, persecution from outside or they're suffering from rot inside. But God's people's lot in this age is to suffer. And, and we need to give real due to the fact that suffering is terrible, isn't it? Like being 42 now, almost 43, let me say to um, all of our young people in here, and I don't mean this to discourage you, just to prepare you. You think you've suffered. You don't know what suffering is yet. As, as, I, as I get older, the joys get deeper and the pain gets worse. Uh, what I struggle with and how deep it goes and sometimes even how long it goes, uh, it, it, gets, it gets worse. That the the things you feel about heartbreak. The longer you live, the, the more there are people who break your heart and let you down. And the longer you will have lived with them thinking that they were friends. And the more pressure you feel because of the more you're responsible for. And so the pressure grows, the suffering grows, 
The joy grows, but it all gets deeper. And we don't need to pretend as if that's not the case. We live in an age of spiritual diabetics where we just want a shot of sugar. Don't give me meat and vegetables. Just every Sunday morning, give me a shot of sugar so I can feel a buzz to take me through the week until that falls off. The problem is, just like regular diabetes, spiritual diabetes makes you blind and makes limbs fall off, right? It, it ruins everything. If we could get over the sugar like cravings and learn to live on meat and potatoes and vegetables, we'd feel better, wouldn't we? Uh, but we, we, don't, we want our suffering. So, so what we do in churches is we both minimize and just make suffering trivial, and then we offer a, a God who is minimized and trivial as well. And probably what we would do well to do in churches is to just talk about how bad suffering does, because the Bible doesn't back away from it, does it? But then we also need to present a God who, who's big enough to woo us out of our temptations and comfort us in our struggles. And so we have these churches that are struggling mightily, and John wants to encourage them. God wants to encourage them. And so the thing that he brings before them is not, first and foremost, the things that you would think. It's not like in John's vision, and I'm not mocking this, but it's not like in John's vision that picture of Jesus holding a little sheep comes down. Right? I love the picture of Jesus holding a sheep. I'm not knocking that. Jesus was a shepherd who wanted little weak things to come to him. I am among them. But because the suffering is great, John is taken up into a, a vision of a God who is seated on a throne who is preeminent over all things. And so what we see is we see, first of all, this church, yes, your suffering is deep. Things are really terrible right now. Maybe even so bad you can't even describe it. But I've got a counter vision. It's a God on a throne that I can't describe either. And if we're going to make it over a lifetime of faith, we've got to have a much bigger God than we probably currently have. And the fact that he's on a throne means that he rules, doesn't it? The fact that he's on a throne means that he rules. What's interesting is uh, it says that in front of them is the sea. And I've mentioned this before, but in the book of Revelation, where do all the bad guys come from just about? The sea. The people of Israel were not a seafaring people. If they needed something done on the sea, they'd hire the Phoenicians because the Phoenicians lived down there and they knew the waters. For Israel, the waters were the thing that they escaped through in their DNA very early on was the fact that God needed to sort of overcome the waters. That's even the picture in Revelation where even as much as you have God speaking things into reality, you have God separating the waters and taming the waters, because that's where the beasts were. That's where everything nasty comes from. And here we see this picture of one on the throne and before him a sea, look at verse 6, as though it were crystal. This is a God who is sovereign over every single thing. This week I read uh, an article by a man um, who was basically thanking God because a year ago he got a terrible kidney disease, but it was discovered early and uh, he went through some terrible pain, but it was cured, and he was still uh, alive. It was uh, Paul David Tripp. And I was just reading and rejoicing in the fact that uh, how much he had learned from the sickness and that God was over and in control of everything that happened. 
And of course, because it's the internet, which uh, unintelligently gives every single person the same voice, there was someone underneath it who basically said this, God doesn't make people sick. And God doesn't do, God doesn't do that. God works for good. And sometimes he's thwarted by our sickness, but he can... And I was just thinking, I don't believe in your God. I believe in the God who is sovereign and over every single thing. As I've said before, Charles Spurgeon, when he talks about this God, says that he controls the way that the dust moves when you see it in a sunbeam. Every single thing. Amos says, does evil befall a city except the Lord has done it? And that God is over everything means that we can trust God in everything. And so we see everything is related to his throne and to his rule. And one of the lessons that we can take from this, listen to me, church, is that everything in your life needs to be related to his throne and his rule. Your mornings need to be related to his rule. Your sex life needs to be related to his throne and his rule. The words that come out of your mouth and the things that you speak need to be related to his throne and his rule. Why? Because he reigns over everything and he will destroy those forever who don't recognize his throne and his rule. All human beings find their significance in their placement around God's throne. All of the earth's inhabitants are judged on the basis of their attitude to God's claim to rule over them from his throne. There's modern uh, evidence that the word faith, pistis in Greek, might even mean something more like allegiance. And so one of the primary views that we need to have of the Lord Jesus from the New Testament is, is yes, he is my savior that I trust in, but the other part of it needs to be, he's my king to whom I've sworn allegiance. And baptism, of course, means a wonderful thing. I have been crucified with him, buried with him, and raised to be like him. But it also means I am entering into an initiatory rite that is going to tell the world that Jesus is my king and I owe him allegiance. So we have his rule leading to his preeminence. Honestly, think through your life for a minute here. Does it reflect that he rules over your life or does it reflect that you rule over your life and in your sovereignty you give him the little bits you think he deserves? Listen to me, please. Every bit of misery that you experience comes from that attitude. Y'all with me? But not only is his rule highlighted here, also his beauty is highlighted here. Colors, descriptions. John can't even put it into words. He's grasping for things just like Ezekiel did in Ezekiel 1. They can't even describe where things are coming from. Things are happening so fast. Uh, in Ezekiel 1 in the Hebrew, it's just as chaotic as it reads in the English. It's just this, this, I saw this. And then it's like he's trying to just take it all in and he can't take it all in. God's beauty is there. And John is giving these churches uh, this vision of the Lord to remind them that in the midst of their suffering, God is not only sovereign, but God is also beautiful. 
He's worth holding on for. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but have you ever had a moment of beauty? You know what that feeling is like? I told you a couple of weeks ago that when I see something beautiful, I never feel more human. But you know what else I feel in that moment when I feel beauty? It's like I feel bliss and an ache at the same time. Y'all feeling me? You know what I'm talking about? Where you see something and it's just amazing. But you're, there's also an ache for two reasons. Because you know this moment's not going to last. And also because you know that this is not the moment of truest beauty that you're intended to experience. I've never had that looking at a video game. But I have had that looking at nature. Never had that looking at a... I've had it looking at a computer screen, but it was a picture of nature. (laughs) It was that sense that you knew that you were made for this, and you just got a taste of it, and you know that there's more out there. It's that the world recognizes that, and they, they pervert it, don't they? They pervert it. They, they have to use flashing lights in the dark because they can't stand the moment in the sun. And what John is doing for this church that is suffering is he's offering them both a God who is sovereign over all things, uh, around whose throne they have to relate all of their lives, but it's not just some scary sovereignty, it's also a beautiful sovereignty. And it's only by holding God's power and by holding God's beauty together that you can be drawn away from a world of sin. A hymn I've quoted before, but I'm not quite over it yet. The hymn is called, Hast Thou Heard Him, Seen Him, Known Him? Listen to what it says. Hast Thou Heard Him, Seen Him, Known Him? Is not Thine a captured heart? Chief among ten thousand own Him. Joyful, choose the better part. Captivated by His beauty, worthy tribute, haste to bring. Let his peerless worth constrain thee, crown him now unrivaled king. What has stripped the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth? Not a sense of right or duty, but the sight of peerless worth. This is the look that melted Peter. This is the face that Stephen saw. This is the heart that wept with Mary. This alone from idols can draw. Do you you see that there? That what's going to draw us out of our sin is not a greater sense of duty. I'm going to do this because it's right. That won't work. A, it won't work because you're thinking, I'm going to do this because it's right. Because I don't know about you, but I don't have that power. Do you? But secondly, right and duty don't break your heart from sin. It just moves your sin into new sin, which is legalism. What we need to have in order to have our hearts captured by God is a vision of God that's beautiful. You struggle with porn? You don't just need to learn to say no to porn. You need to say yes to true beauty. You need to say yes to truer bliss. You need to realize that A, you're treating her terribly. And B, you're not looking at the thing you should be looking at that would make you full of joy. Or maybe it's not porn. Maybe everything you do in your life is to kind of hold yourself forward. Notice me, please. Somebody notice me. Look at what I did here. Notice me. 
That's not what, you don't overcome that with, I shouldn't do that. You overcome that with the beauty of a sovereign and beautiful Lord and you say, look at him. And here's the thing. As long as our hearts are held captive to trivial stuff, we won't have the taste to even go after it. Some of you are thinking this morning, Drew, I like that. It sounds right. I don't even know where to start. Yeah, amen. Start by turning off the things that you do find beautiful and attractive. The things you, you, you long to go after, start by cutting those things off. And, and then you'll begin to have your senses grow and your taste grow for, for the beauty of the Lord. Listen, so John Owen, that is one of about 15 volumes of literature that he wrote. And you're like, I, I, I couldn't read that, nor could I write it. You know what every word of what he did was? Look at this verse. Look at what this says. Look at this again. Put this together. You see in this facet? Look at this. He just couldn't stop. So many of us won't start. God is preeminent. So teenagers... In your thinking, is God at the center? Because your life will be judged on the basis of how you relate to his throne. Adults, do you see him as beautiful? Secondly, we see his posse. I've said this before, but I want to focus on one particular part. Look at verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder, and before the throne were seven uh, burning, seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, and before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. I want you to focus on these 24 elders. Now, we've talked about this before, but if you read commentaries, here's the deal. A lot of people think that these are angels, and a lot of people think that they're human beings, and it's confusing. So I want us to focus on this for a second and pay attention here because this is important because I think these 24 elders are going to tell us something important about where the book of Revelation is headed. So these 24 elders, what are they? Why are there 24 of them? Well, some people think that there are 24 of them because they represent the 12 apostles and the, the 12 patriarchs of Israel. That's a good guess, but I don't think that's why there's 24 of them. We need to look in the Bible and see if there's uh, any other place where 24 is mentioned. As a matter of fact, there is another place in the Bible where there are 24 of things. In 1 Chronicles, when the temple is being set up, the Levites are divided into these 24 groups. They're priests. They're people who mediate God's presence. Uh, some of them praise the Lord. Some of them offer sacrifice. These groups of 24. So maybe what these things are are groups of 24 priests. So are they human priests or are they angelic priests? Well, we can see why people would think they're human beings because a lot of what they possess are the things that are promised to the churches. Let me repeat that again. You need to lock onto this. The things that they possess are the things that are promised to the church. And so a lot of scholars think, well, if these are the things that are promised to human beings in the church, these must be human beings. So in Laodicea, in chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus says to the one who conquers, I'll sit him on a throne. Where are these guys sitting? On thrones. In Sardis, Jesus says to the one who conquers, he'll be clothed in white garments. Where are these guys sitting? On thrones. What are they wearing? White garments. 
Uh, Jesus says to Smyrna, be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. What are these guys wearing? Crowns. But then there are other places in the Bible, in Revelation, where they're doing the sorts of things that angels do. So, for instance, in apocalyptic literature, it's always angels that explain things to you. Invariably, when John needs an explanation, it's one of these elders who are explaining it to him. So, Revelation 7, one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Furthermore, it's difficult to say that these guys are human beings because they don't know the songs that saved humans know. So, for instance, Revelation 14, 3 they're singing this song, and it says no one could learn that song except for the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So what's going on here? Well, let me focus in on this because I think this is the whole point of the book of Revelation. Are you ready? I think they're angels who are currently in the place that humans are meant to be in. Let me repeat that. These are angels who are currently in the place that humans are meant to be in. These elders are around God's throne. They're his counsel. Those four cherubim, they guard God's presence. So they're God's guardians, and they're part of God's counsel. So whenever you see in the Psalms, the Lord sits among the counsel of his holy ones, we're talking about angels there. But the reason that they have things that humans are promised is because they're in a place that humans are meant to be in. Everybody with me? And what's amazing, I say that the book of Revelation is about not the future. It's helping us to interpret something that happened in the past. And here's what happened in the past. Are you ready? In the past, Adam was set in a garden to guard it and to keep it. And because he sinned, what did God place in the garden to guard it? An angel. And when the Lord gave his covenant to Moses, do you know uh, it's the covenant of law? It's the covenant that was over the city of Jerusalem around the time of A.D. 70. And if you have eyes to see this, what you realize is it wasn't God, Moses, people. That Old Testament covenant was God, angels, Moses, people. Let me share some verses with you. Acts chapter 7. You stiff-necked people, talking to the Jews, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of your prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Galatians 3.19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promises had been made. It was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Hebrews 2.1-4, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So what you, you see is if you read the Bible is that the Old Testament and the people of Israel 
were formed by a covenant that not only had Moses between them and God, but also had angels between them and God. Are you following me? And so here's how the world was supposed to work. Are you ready? The world was supposed to work that God related directly to man. Man guarded his name and man was in his counsel. Mankind sinned, was separated from God. And so in the old covenant, the Judaic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, what God did is he put between us and Moses angels. And they delivered the words. They helped prosecute the judgments. They protected the Lord. They protected his name. Okay? Now here's how this applies. Follow me. If the old covenant was the one given by angels... And if I'm right in saying that the book of Revelation is not about the future, but it is about what happened when God finally and fully destroyed Jerusalem in A.D. 70, then what you have is you have a world dying, you have a covenant dying, and you have God now dealing with people in a different way. And what we're going to see in the book of Revelation is at some point, these elders get up off their thrones and we never see them get back on their thrones again. Do you know why? Because human beings come and sit down on the throne. And when did that occur? That occurred when God carried out his wrath on his people, thus ending the old covenant and bringing in the new covenant. Now, because there was a man who protected God fully and lived fully for his glory, now, because of Jesus, listen to me, all of mankind who trust in him can be brought in to, again, take up their post as the guardians of God's glory and members of the divine council. Now, is that immediately applicable on Monday morning? What are you going to do with that? It's immediately applicable on Monday morning. Do you know why? Because you were made to be in God's counsel and he delights that you be in his presence and he desires that besides Jesus there is nothing between you and him and he made you to rule and to reign and you're looking at stupid stuff on your phone. And you're waiting to hear somebody responds to something you said and if nobody likes what you wrote then your heart breaks or someone doesn't look at you the right way you think they're judging you and your, your heart breaks. We live our lives responding to stupid stuff. Unable to walk away because we don't have any sovereign beauty drawing us anywhere else. Living for the next moment. Living for the next pleasure. Yes, this is applicable in money. This is a 30,000 foot doctrine, but we need 30,000 foot doctrines, don't we? And what this one says is, you can have so much more of the Lord than you currently have because you were made and Jesus made a way for you to come into his presence and to be a part of his counsel. I think that's good stuff. And so what the Lord was doing in the book of Revelation, and I hope to prove this to you along the way, is that in bringing about his judgment, on his old covenant people, he was clearing everything now because Jesus Christ, our champion, has made a way for humanity to reach its full capacity. And that's not just to do good things for others, that's to actually join in the counsel of God. 
And by moving Jerusalem and, and all this stuff out of the way, the Lord has now made a way for those who are faithful to him in spite of persecution and who are drawn to his sovereign power and glory to know him and to be close to him. And I think that's what everything following this is about. Finally, we see his purpose. I'll skip one because I'm running out of time. John MacArthur one, said, one time said, I never finish a sermon, I just stop. I'm feeling this way this morning. His purpose. What do we see from Revelation 4 about what his purpose is? Here's what God's purpose is. Are you ready? It's to bring heaven to earth. It's to bring heaven to earth. Look at verse 3 in chapter 4. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Jasper and Carnelian are these two like brownish red, red stones that have different transparencies. But John sees basically this vision and all he can make out is something that's kind of red and then something that's kind of green. What's interesting is whenever God's glory is mentioned in the Bible, some, somewhere and somehow Jasper and Carnelian make an appearance. E even on the... the the, the ephod of the priest, the stones were Jasper and Carnelian and others. This is the stone that sort of in some way represents God's glory. And this is what you see. This is what is shining in heaven. And what's interesting is if you look at Revelation 21, 1 through 22, 5, do you know what the primary sort of colors that John sees when he sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven? What do you think they are? Jasper and Carnelian. These are the kind of clues that you can find in the book of Revelation that tell you what is God's purpose. God's purpose is to make mankind what he intended for mankind to be. And God's desire is to bring heaven to earth. I could preach a whole sermon on this. You know why? Because most of the ludicrous crap that happens in politics is as a result of us wanting to bring heaven to earth. And who is the only one who's going to bring heaven to earth? Let me tell you the point of politics in one line. It's to keep sin at bay, period. Because there's only one who can bring in paradise. Who is it? Yeah, and so there are people banging on the doors of the Supreme Court, even though there's nobody in there. And why they're banging with such fury because they don't like some decision that's made. They're banging because this is their hope of utopia. And God's whole point is for him to bring it to us. The Christian view of life is this. Are you ready? Anything good you have came from outside you. And anything good that's going to happen in the world is going to come from outside it. And so the key is just to restrain evil the best we can in politics, not to hope uh, for future glory or for something to finally happen. The only time anything's going to finally happen is when God makes it happen. You should be completely uh, engaged in politics while you work desperately to keep your hope somewhere else. His purpose is to bring heaven to earth. And here's the thing. Are you ready? Because of Jesus, he now can. Because, because of Jesus, he now can. You see, what Jesus did is, is Jesus lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died so that you can now and in the future live the life you should have lived. That's the gospel. 
both parts of it. He died the death you should have died so that now, in his strength, you can live the life you should have lived. We see this in the way God is revealed. There's a rainbow there. Where do we see a rainbow in the Bible? Yeah. Noah. You see it in Ezekiel as well. Interesting thing about Noah. The way it's phrased in the Bible is God says, I'm never going to destroy the earth by water again. And the way he promises that is it says he puts a bow in the sky. Now, it's interesting. It doesn't, there's not a, the Hebrew word there is not rainbow. The Hebrew word there is war bow. So he's not going to bring vengeance on the earth. And the sign of that is that he put his war bow in the sky. Now, if we're down here and the war bow is aimed like that, which way is it shooting? Shooting up. What the Lord promises there is the reason I'm not going to bring vengeance in the same way on the earth again is because I'm going to bring vengeance upon myself. And so we see his mercy there in this rainbow. But we see his judgment there in the lightning and the things that come out. Some of you don't care about God except that you use him to make yourself feel better when occasionally you want to feel better. And the God of Revelation is not going to put up with that. And the best thing I can tell you this morning is he's borne his wrath on his son so that if you will repent and follow him and live under his reign, he will make you what you should have been all along. But if you refuse to do that and you live in petty friendships and petty thoughts about petty things, then you're refusing his reign. You're refusing his name, and the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. But because of Jesus, the Lord can now make us what he intended us to be. And the whole point of the book of Revelation is that he has removed that old world of the old covenant out of the way. Now in Jesus, he's establishing a new world. It's a world that we can be a part of, that by his grace we can further. But it only happens as we love his beauty, as we follow his rule and as we spread his word. And Jesus, who we'll see in a couple of weeks, who is that lamb and the lion, has made a way for God to make us what we should have been all along. So this morning, if you came in absolutely riddled with guilt, I mean this in the most loving way. I wish some of you would come in occasionally riddled with guilt. It would mean there's some life in there. If you came in this morning riddled with guilt, here's the great thing. Jesus died for your sins, and he can change you. He can make you new. He can make you what you thought you would never be. As you fall under his rule by faith, as you walk in the power of his spirit, as you continue to live in repentance, Jesus can make you things you never thought he would be for your own good, for the good of others, and for his glory. And so we need to trust him, and we need to obey him. Second thing is we need to fall and live in light of his plan and we need to never look at another human being again as if they're just somebody. That's somebody who could be in God's counsel. They need to hear the word of his grace. They need to be challenged. Our humanity is found here. Well, next week we'll look at the worship of the one in heaven, and then we'll keep our moving through. Let's pray together. Lord, give us the capacity to apply big concepts to our lives. It's difficult 
We live in a bullet point culture. You give us five quick tips for every single thing. And Lord, those aren't unhelpful, but they're not empowering. Only a vision of what you would have us to be and a vision of you and of Jesus is empowering. And so, Lord, I pray this week as the shepherd of these folks. Lord, I lift them to you and I pray that you would give them a vision of your glory. One that both brings bliss and brings ache. And Father, help it to break them of their idolatry. Lord, give them a vision of what Jesus is and was for them. And Lord, give them a vision of what they can be in him. And Lord, just win our hearts with this beauty, we pray. Amen.